Section two of Milton by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part two. In support of these observations, we may remark that scarcely any passages in the poems of Milton are more generally known or more frequently repeated than those which are little more than muster rolls of names they are not always more appropriate or more melodious than other names but they are charmed names every one of them is the first link in a long chain of associated ideas like the dwelling-place of our infancy revisited in manhood like the song of our country heard in a strange land they produce upon us an effect wholly independent of their intrinsic value one transports us back to a remote period of history another places us among the novel scenes and manners of a distant region a third evokes all the dear classical recollections of childhood the schoolroom the dog-eared virgil the holiday and the prize a fourth brings before us the splendid phantoms of chivalrous romance the trophied lists the embroidered housings the quaint devices the haunted forests the enchanted gardens the achievements of enamoured knights and the smiles of rescued princesses in none of the works of milton is his peculiar manner more happily displayed than in the allegro and the penseroso it is impossible to conceive that the mechanism of language can be brought to a more exquisite degree of perfection these poems differ from others as attar of roses differs from ordinary rose-water the close-packed essence from the thin diluted mixture they are indeed not so much poems as collections of hints from each of which the reader is to make out a poem for himself every epithet is a text for a stanza the comus and the samson agonistes are works which though of very different merit offer some marked points of resemblance both are lyric poems in the form of plays there are perhaps no two kinds of composition so essentially dissimilar as the drama and the ode the business of the dramatist is to keep himself out of sight and to let nothing appear but his characters as soon as he attracts notice to his personal feelings the illusion is broken the effect is as unpleasant as that which is produced on the stage by the voice of a prompter or the entrance of a scene-shifter hence it was that the tragedies of byron were his least successful performances they resemble those pasteboard pictures invented by the friend of children mr newbury in which a single movable head goes round twenty different bodies so that the same face looks out upon us successively from the uniform of a hussar the furs of a judge and the rags of a beggar in all the characters patriots and tyrants haters and lovers the frown and sneer of harold were discernible in an instant but this species of egotism though fatal to the drama is the inspiration of the ode it is the part of the lyric poet to abandon himself without reserve to his own emotions between these hostile elements many great men have endeavoured to effect an amalgamation but never with complete success the greek drama on the model of which the samson was written sprang from the ode the dialogue was engrafted on the chorus and naturally partook of its character 
the genius of the greatest of the athenian dramatists cooperated with the circumstances under which tragedy made its first appearance aeschylus was head and heart a lyric poet in his time the greeks had far more intercourse with the east than in the days of homer and they had not yet acquired that immense superiority in war in science and in the arts which in the following generation led them to treat the asiatics with contempt from the narrative of herodotus it should seem that they still looked up with the veneration of disciples to egypt and assyria at this period accordingly it was natural that the literature of greece should be tinctured with the oriental style and that style we think is discernible in the works of pindar and aeschylus the latter often reminds us of the hebrew writers the book of job indeed in conduct and diction bears a considerable resemblance to some of his dramas considered as plays his works are absurd considered as choruses they are above all praise if for instance we examine the address of clytemnestra to agamemnon on his return or the description of the seven argive chiefs by the principles of dramatic writing we shall instantly condemn them as monstrous but if we forget the characters and think only of the poetry we shall admit that it has never been surpassed in energy and magnificence sophocles made the greek drama as dramatic as was consistent with its original form his portraits of men have a sort of similarity but it is the similarity not of painting but of bas-relief it suggests a resemblance but it does not produce an illusion euripides attempted to carry the reform further but it was a task far beyond his powers perhaps beyond any powers instead of correcting what was bad he destroyed what was excellent he substituted crutches for stilts bad sermons for good odes milton it is well known admired euripides highly much more highly than in our opinion euripides deserved indeed the caresses which this partiality leads our countrymen to bestow on sad electress poet sometimes reminds us of the beautiful queen of fairyland kissing the long ears of bottom at all events there can be no doubt that this veneration for the athenian whether just or not was injurious to the samson agonistes had milton taken aeschylus for his model he would have given himself up to the lyric inspiration and poured out profusely all the treasures of his mind without bestowing a thought on those dramatic proprieties which the nature of the work rendered it impossible to preserve in the attempt to reconcile things in their own nature inconsistent he has failed as every one else must have failed we cannot identify ourselves with the characters as in a good play we cannot identify ourselves with the poet as in a good ode the conflicting ingredients like an acid and an alkali mixed neutralize each other we are by no means insensible to the merits of this celebrated piece to the severe dignity of the style the graceful and pathetic solemnity of the opening speech or the wild and barbaric melody which gives so striking an effect to the choral passages but we think it we confess 
the least successful effort of the genius of milton the comus is framed on the model of the italian mask as the samson is framed on the model of the greek tragedy it is certainly the noblest performance of the kind which exists in any language it is as far superior to the faithful shepherdess as the faithful shepherdess is to the aminta or the aminta to the pastor fido it was well for milton that he had here no euripides to mislead him he understood and loved the literature of modern italy but he did not feel for it the same veneration which he entertained for the remains of athenian and roman recollections the faults moreover of his italian predecessors were of a kind to which his mind had a deadly antipathy he could stoop to a plain style sometimes even to a bald style but false brilliancy was his utter aversion his muse had no objection to a russet attire but she turned with disgust from the finery of guerini as tawdry and as paltry as the rags of a chimney-sweeper on may-day whatever ornaments she wears are of massive gold not only dazzling to the sight but capable of standing the severest test of the crucible milton attended in the comus to the distinction which he afterwards neglected in the samson he made his mask what it ought to be essentially lyrical and dramatic only in semblance he has not attempted a fruitless struggle against a defect inherent in the nature of that species of composition and he has therefore succeeded wherever success was not impossible the speeches must be read as majestic soliloquies and he who so reads them will be enraptured with their eloquence their sublimity and their music the interruptions of the dialogue however impose a constraint upon the writer and break the illusion of the reader the finest passages are those which are lyric in form as well as in spirit i should much commend says the excellent sir henry Wotton in a letter to milton the tragical part if the lyrical did not ravish me with a certain doric delicacy in your songs and odes whereunto i must plainly confess to you i have seen yet nothing parallel in our language the criticism was just it is when milton escapes from the shackles of the dialogue when he is discharged from the labour of uniting two incongruous styles when he is at liberty to indulge his choral raptures without reserve that he rises even above himself then like his own good genius bursting from the earthly form and weeds of thyrsus he stands forth in celestial freedom and beauty he seems to cry exultingly now my task is smoothly done i can fly or i can run to skim the earth to soar above the clouds to bathe in the elysian dew of the rainbow and to inhale the balmy smells of nard and cassia which the musky winds of the zephyr scatter through the cedared alleys of the hesperides there are several of the minor poems of milton on which we would willingly make a few remarks still more willingly would we enter into a detailed examination of that admirable poem the paradise regained which strangely enough is scarcely ever mentioned except as an instance of the blindness of the parental affection which men of letters bear toward the offspring of their intellects that milton was mistaken in preferring this work excellent as it is to the paradise lost we readily admit 
but we are sure that the superiority of the paradise lost to the paradise regained is not more decided than the superiority of the paradise regained to every poem which has since made its appearance our limits however prevent us from discussing the point at length we hasten on to that extraordinary production which the general suffrage of critics has placed in the highest class of human compositions the only poem of modern times which can be compared with the paradise lost is the divine comedy the subject of milton in some points resembled that of dante but he has treated it in a widely different manner we cannot we think better illustrate our opinion regarding our own great poet than by contrasting him with the father of tuscan literature the poetry of milton differs from that of dante as the hieroglyphics of egypt differed from the picture writing of mexico the images which dante employs speak for themselves they stand simply for what they are those of milton have a signification which is often discernible only to the initiated their value depends less on what they directly represent than on what they remotely suggest however strange however grotesque may be the appearance which dante undertakes to describe he never shrinks from describing it he gives us the shape the colour the sound the smell the taste he counts the numbers he measures the size his similes are the illustrations of a traveller unlike those of other poets and especially of milton they are introduced in a plain business-like manner not for the sake of any beauty in the objects from which they are drawn not for the sake of any ornament which they may impart to the poem but simply in order to make the meaning of the writer as clear to the reader as it is to himself the ruins of the precipice which led from the sixth to the seventh circle of hell are like those of the rock which fell into the adige on the south of trent the cataract of phlegathon was like that of aquaceta at the monastery of st benedict the place where the heretics were confined in burning tombs resembled the vast cemetery of arles now let us compare with the exact details of dante the dim intimations of milton we will cite a few examples the english poet has never thought of taking the measure of satan he gives us merely a vague idea of vast bulk in one passage the fiend lies stretched out huge in length floating many a rood equal in size to the earth-born enemies of jove or to the sea-monster which the mariner mistakes for an island when he addresses himself to battle against the guardian angels he stands like tenerife or atlas his stature reaches the sky contrast with these descriptions the lines in which dante has described the gigantic spectre of nimrod his face seemed to me as long and as broad as the ball of st peter's in rome and his other limbs were in proportion so that the bank which concealed him from the waist downwards nevertheless showed so much of him that three tall germans would in vain have attempted to reach to his hair we are sensible that we do no justice to the admirable style of the florentine poet but mr carey's translation is not at hand and our version however rude is sufficient to illustrate our meaning once more compare the lazar house in the eleventh book of the paradise lost 
with the last ward of Malabolge and Dante. Milton avoids the loathsome details and takes refuge in indistinct but solemn and tremendous imagery. Despair hurrying from couch to couch to mock the wretches with his attendants, death shaking his dart over them, but in spite of supplications delaying to strike. What says Dante? There was such a moan there as there would be if all the sick who between July and September are in the hospitals of Valdichiana and of the Tuscan swamps and of Sardinia were in one pit together, and such a stench was issuing forth as is wont to issue from decayed limbs. We will not take upon ourselves the invidious office of settling precedency between two such writers. Each in his own department is incomparable, and each, we may remark, has wisely or fortunately taken a subject adapted to exhibit his peculiar talent to the greatest advantage. The Divine Comedy is a personal narrative. Dante is the eye-witness and ear-witness of that which he relates. He is the very man who has heard the tormented spirits crying out for the second death, who has read the dusky characters on the portal within which there is no hope, who has hidden his face from the terrors of the gorgon, who has fled from the hooks and the seething pitch of Barbariccia and Draginazzo. His own hands have grasped the shaggy sides of Lucifer, his own feet have climbed the mountain of expiation. His own brow has been marked by the purifying angel. The reader would throw aside such a tale in incredulous disgust, unless it was told with the strongest air of veracity, with a sobriety even in its horrors, with the greatest precision and multiplicity in its details. The narrative of Milton in this respect differs from that of Dante, as the adventures of Amadis differ from those of Gulliver. The author of Amadis would have made his book ridiculous if he had introduced those minute particulars which give such a charm to the work of Swift. The nautical observations, the affected delicacy about names, the official documents transcribed at full length, and all the unmeaning gossip and scandal of the court, springing out of nothing and tending to nothing. We are not shocked at being told that a man who lived, nobody knows when, saw many very strange sights, and we can easily abandon ourselves to the illusion of the romance. But when Lemuel Gulliver, surgeon, resident at Rotherhithe, tells us of pygmies and giants, flying islands and philosophizing horses, nothing but such circumstantial touches could produce for a single moment a deception on the imagination. Of all the poets who have introduced into their works the agency of supernatural beings, Milton has succeeded best. Here Dante decidedly yields to him, and as this is a point on which many rash and ill-considered judgments have been pronounced, we feel inclined to dwell on it a little longer. The most fatal error which a poet can possibly commit in the management of his machinery is that of attempting to philosophize too much. Milton has been often censured for ascribing to spirits many functions of which spirits must be incapable. But these objections, though sanctioned by eminent names, originate, we venture to say, in profound ignorance of the art of poetry. What is spirit? 
what are our minds the portion of spirit with which we are best acquainted we observe certain phenomena we cannot explain them into material causes we therefore infer that there exists something which is not material but of this something we have no idea we can define it only by negatives we can reason about it only by symbols we use the word but we have no image of the thing and the business of poetry is with images and not with words the poet uses words indeed but they are merely the instruments of his art not its objects they are the materials which he is to dispose in such a manner as to present a picture to the mental eye and if they are not so disposed they are no more entitled to be called poetry than a bale of canvas and a box of colours is to be called a painting logicians may reason about abstractions but the great mass of men must have images the strong tendency of the multitude in all ages and nations to idolatry can be explained on no other principle the first inhabitants of greece there is reason to believe worshipped one invisible deity but the necessity of having something more definite to adore produced in a few centuries the innumerable crowd of gods and goddesses in like manner the ancient persians thought it impious to exhibit the creator under a human form yet even these transferred to the sun the worship which in speculation they considered due only to the supreme mind the history of the jews is the record of a continued struggle between pure theism supported by the most terrible sanctions and the strangely fascinating desire of having some visible and tangible object of adoration perhaps none of the secondary causes which gibbon has assigned for the rapidity with which christianity spread over the world while judaism scarcely ever acquired a proselyte operated more powerfully than this feeling god the uncreated the incomprehensible the invisible attracted few worshippers a philosopher might admire so noble a conception but the crowd turned away in disgust from words which presented no image to their minds it was before deity embodied in a human form walking among men partaking of their infirmities leaning on their bosoms weeping over their graves slumbering in the manger bleeding on the cross that the prejudices of the synagogue and the doubts of the academy and the pride of the portico and the fasces of the lictor and the swords of thirty legions were humbled in the dust soon after christianity had achieved its triumph the principle which had assisted it began to corrupt it it became a new paganism patron saints assumed the offices of household gods st george took the place of mars st elmo consoled the mariner for the loss of castor and pollux the virgin mother and cecilia succeeded to venus and the muses the fascination of sex and loveliness was again joined to that of celestial dignity and the homage of chivalry was blended with that of religion reformers have often made a stand against these feelings but never with more than apparent and partial success the men who demolished the images and cathedrals have not always been able to demolish those which were enshrined in their minds it would not be difficult to show that in politics the same rule holds good doctrines we are afraid 
must generally be embodied before they can excite a strong public feeling the multitude is more easily interested for the most unmeaning badge or the most insignificant name than for the most important principle from these considerations we infer that no poet who should affect that metaphysical accuracy for the want of which milton has been blamed would escape a disgraceful failure still however there was another extreme which though far less dangerous was also to be avoided the imaginations of men are in a great measure under the control of their opinions the most exquisite art of poetical colouring can produce no illusion when it is employed to represent that which is at once perceived to be incongruous and absurd milton wrote in an age of philosophers and theologians it was necessary therefore for him to abstain from giving such a shock to their understandings as might break the charm which it was his object to throw over their imaginations this is the real explanation of the indistinctness and inconsistency with which he has often been reproached dr johnson acknowledges that it was absolutely necessary that the spirit should be clothed with material forms but says he the poet should have secured the consistency of his system by keeping immateriality out of sight and seducing the reader to drop it from his thoughts this is easily said but what if milton could not seduce his readers to drop immateriality from their thoughts what if the contrary opinion had taken so full a possession of the minds of men as to leave no room even for the half-belief which poetry requires such we suspect to have been the case it was impossible for the poet to adopt altogether the material or the immaterial system he therefore took his stand on the debatable ground he left the whole in ambiguity he has doubtless by so doing laid himself open to the charge of inconsistency but though philosophically in the wrong we cannot but believe that he was poetically in the right this task which almost any other writer would have found impracticable was easy to him the peculiar art which he possessed of communicating his meaning circuitously through a long succession of associated ideas and of intimating more than he expressed enabled him to disguise those incongruities which he could not avoid poetry which relates to the beings of another world ought to be at once mysterious and picturesque that of milton is so that of dante is picturesque indeed beyond any that ever was written its effect approaches to that produced by the pencil or the chisel but it is picturesque to the exclusion of all mystery this is a fault on the right side a fault inseparable from the plan of dante's poem which as we have already observed rendered the utmost accuracy of description necessary still it is a fault the supernatural agents excite an interest but it is not the interest which is proper to supernatural agents we feel that we could talk to the ghosts and demons without any emotion of unearthly awe we could like don juan ask them to supper and eat heartily in their company dante's angels are good men with wings his devils are spiteful ugly executioners his dead men are merely living men in strange situations the scene which passes between the poet and farinata is justly celebrated still farinata in the burning tomb 
is exactly what Farinata would have been at an auto de fe. Nothing can be more touching than the first interview of Dante with Beatrice. Yet what is it but a lovely woman chiding with sweet, austere composure the lover for whose affection she is grateful, but whose vices she reprobates? The feelings which give the passage its charm would suit the streets of Florence as well as the summit of the Mount of Purgatory. The spirits of Milton are unlike those of almost all other writers. His fiends in particular are wonderful creations. They are not metaphysical abstractions. They are not wicked men. They are not ugly beasts. They have no horns, no tails, none of the fee-fo-fum of Tasso and Klopstock. They have just enough in common with human nature to be intelligible to human beings. Their characters are like their forms, marked by a certain dim resemblance to those of men, but exaggerated to gigantic dimensions and veiled in mysterious gloom. End of section 2